News. Friday, May 6th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, heavy fighting rages in Mariupol as Russian forces seek to capture the vital Ukrainian port city. The first time in my life I saw supersonic airplanes flying so low and attacking the positions. There were some tanks there. It's incredible to see like how this war is being fought. A global alliance urges the International Court of Justice to consider the human rights impacts of climate change. Vanuatu says global warming is a human rights issue. It wants the International Court of Justice to protect vulnerable communities and the rights of residents. And the U.S. ASEAN Summit opens next week in Washington without Myanmar and the Philippines. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Heavy fighting raged yesterday at the shattered steel plant in Mariupol. These as Russian forces sought to finish up the city's last-ditch defenders and complete the capture of the strategically vital Ukrainian port. The bloody battle came amid growing suspicions that President Vladimir Putin wants to present the Russian people with a major battlefield success, unquote, Victory Day, unquote, which is Monday, which marked Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany. VOA's Jan Boschert has been in the city of Zaporizhia, where evacuees from Mariupol have been transported, but traveled back to the front lines of the conflict. He spoke with Flashpoint's Ukraine's host, Steve Miller. I was just like two kilometers from the Russian forces with the Ukrainian army. And then we just saw two Sukhois flying really, really low and attacking some positions of the Ukrainians. And they, they left. It was so fast. It was incredible. The first time in my life I saw supersonic airplanes flying so low and attacking the positions. There were some tanks there. It's incredible to see like how this war is being fought, you know. You mentioned that you had the opportunity to not only speak with some of the Ukrainian fighters along that line of conflict, but also were able to go into some of the trenches? I did, yeah. I went to the first line of defense. I think it was a kind of observation line, you know, inside the trenches. I spent an hour with them there. A lot of them, they were civilians just three months ago. People who volunteered to join the army. Uh, the guy who was escorting me, he was a wedding photographer, and now he's fighting there. So, yeah, we were with them, and today it was very quiet, they said. Last five days, a lot of flashes, but today it was quiet. And it's true, we didn't see a lot of action, just the airplanes flying and some shooting with artillery. Yeah, and I wanted to get your impression of what you saw there, because there has been a lot of speculation that Russia may ramp up its attacks over the weekends so that Russian President Vladimir Putin can declare some kind of major victory in advance of May 9th, which is Russia's Victory Day, signifying Russia's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. Everybody's just talking about this. Even there at the trenches, they were really, really worried because today was so quiet. And this guy was telling me, I'm, I'm worried because they are planning something. It's never quiet as this. So yeah, Monday will be a major day here. Everybody was expecting something to happen because the war, you know, it's a slow rhythm right now. Nothing's really happening. The Russians are not really pushing really, really hard. So I think everybody's very, very tense for what can happen on Monday and where it can happen. That's Flashpoint's Ukraine host Steve Miller speaking with reporter Jan Bochat. 
With the help of international experts, Ukraine is rushing to collect evidence of widespread war crimes using 21st century technology to bring the perpetrators to justice. VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias reports. More than 50,000 police officers have been deployed to the combat areas of Ukraine. They're not just working to repel Russia's invasion. They're also investigating crimes, war crimes, says Yevhan Yenin, Ukraine's first deputy interior minister. Almost 21,000 criminal proceedings have been filed for crimes committed under martial law. Among them are almost 9,000 criminal proceedings on the facts of crimes committed on the territory of Ukraine by servicemen of the armed forces of the Russian Federation and their accomplices. A mission of experts tasked by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe found what they call clear patterns of international humanitarian law violations. Professor Wolfgang Benedict chaired the mission. There have been cases of killings, there have been cases of torture, there have been cases of rapes. Dangerous conditions prevented them from working on site. But they didn't need to. There's a vast digital record. There is practically everything visible on the internet in form of videos, in form of pictures, or also in testimonies of victims. 21st century forensics are helping Ukraine's prosecutor general, Irina Venediktova, too. She has gathered thousands of photos and videos by crowdsourcing through an official website. Social media is very important too because we can use these open resources and we have uh, the team of uh, near 100 prosecutors who work with open resources. And uh, for us, very, very useful to analyze this information. But making these images admissible in a trial is the goal of the British charity behind the Eyewitness to Atrocities app. The app collects the time, location, and other verification data that prosecutors can take to court. Wendy Betts is the charity's director. First is where and when the footage was taken, making sure that we know that information, making sure the footage hasn't been edited so its integrity is intact, and making sure that we can trace the lifespan of that footage to know that nobody had any access to make any changes. It's a tsunami of information that the Ukrainian authorities need to comb through. The United States is helping protect this mother load from hackers, says Clint Williamson, former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues. The war that's being fought in the information sphere uh, is just as active as, as what's going on on the ground. We're trying to provide a wide range of support to, to the Ukrainian authorities to help them deal with all the contingencies that they're going to confront. As they, as they look into these crimes. At the United Nations, Prosecutor Karim Khan of the International Criminal Court told VOA that tech isn't a substitute for older forensic tools, but it extends the power of human recollection. You can imagine a witness uh, very often uh, traumatized uh, with the passage of time, their memories naturally uh, will may change, may falter. If forensic evidence is collected properly, it's more capable uh, you know, to be uh, uh, viewed as reliable once it's been uh, tested and uh, it's been looked into. It may take years before the evidence reaches the criminal court. Russian authorities who deny war crimes didn't respond to numerous interview requests. There are allegations of war crimes by Ukrainian nationals, though far fewer. 
The Ukrainian prosecutor general, Venediktova, told VOA she will investigate and cooperate with the International Criminal Court. Veronica Valderas Iglesias for VOA News, Washington. When the U.S. ASEAN Summit opens next week in Washington, it will be the first time Southeast Asian leaders will gather together at the White House for such an event. While the leaders of the Philippines and Myanmar will not be attending the summit, it comes at a critical time for regional security and increasing economic engagement. For VOA, Jessica Stone reports. Since the first ASEAN summit was held in the U.S. in 2016 at Sunnylands in California, Southeast Asian leaders have witnessed a military coup, natural disasters, a pandemic, and now fuel and food shortages due to the war in Ukraine and China's port lockdowns. Mark Mealy of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. In Asia, you know, trade, for example, is often perceived as strategy. And we know historically that while the United States has been very, very successful in the security element of strategy. It's the trade dimension of strategy that has been more challenging. While six ASEAN member states are among Washington's top trading partners, experts say the U.S. will not unveil any major economic engagement initiatives during the summit. So what can the summit deliver for the region? Observers say Southeast Asia wants reassurances that American military support for NATO and Ukraine will not come at a cost to continuing its commitments in the Indo-Pacific. Greg Poling directs the Southeast Asia Program and Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is the classic Goldilocks problem in Southeast Asia. Everything the U.S. does is either too much or too little. It's never just right. And that speaks to how much the region wants the U.S. to get this right. But there's always this constant anxiety. Experts also say Washington needs to send a clear message on the U.S.-China relationship, particularly around freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Greg Poling. You have to see strong condemnation of Chinese behavior at every summit like this, or some parties in the region point say, see, the U.S. has gone wobbly. Mark Mealy. Certainly it is valuable for ASEAN member states to understand and therefore figure out uh, if there's going to be subsequent shifts or further changes in the U.S.-China relationship, how do they, quote-unquote, maybe take advantage of those shifts? One area where ASEAN is already stepping in is providing an alternative to the Chinese manufacturing supply chain. The U.S. ASEAN Business Council says Malaysia is expected to announce increased cooperation with American semiconductor manufacturers. Jessica Stone, VOA News, Washington. An international labor organization surveying 80 countries find collective bargaining agreements and practices are critical to improving working conditions, closing the gender wage gap, and in reducing inequality and discrimination in the workplace. The ILO has just launched the first in a series of reports on social dialogue. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The report finds one-third or one in three workers around the world benefits from collective bargaining agreements negotiated between trade unions and employers. One of the more dramatic examples of that is the crucial role collective bargaining has played in mitigating the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on employment and earnings. ILO Director General Guy Ryder says the negotiating parties arrived at solutions that proved critical in protecting workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. He says those solutions have proved crucial in preserving essential health care, social care and other services. 
Secondly, collective bargaining helped prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace through paid sick leave provision and the joint oversight of workplace safety and health during successive lockdowns and workplace returns. And thirdly, and as with previous crises, collective bargaining helped save jobs, protect earnings and safeguard business continuity. Much attention recently has been given to efforts to unionize corporate giants Amazon and Starbucks in the United States. However, the ILO report highlights the important role collective bargaining plays in developing as well as developed countries. Lead author of the ILO report, Susan Hayter, says 57 of the agreements reviewed were in African countries. She says country studies found that collective bargaining in those countries is as effective, if not in some ways more effective than in developed countries. Let me just take the example of Sierra Leone, where there, there was, we did not have the employment retention measures that perhaps other countries in Europe had. And the parties sat down at the bargaining table and really sought to find a way to ensure that, and this is in tourism, that workers were able to come in on a rotational basis, uh, given the, the, the lockdown, so that all workers could at least get some income. Authors of the ILO report say collective bargaining will be an essential tool to face the fundamental changes that are shaking up the world of work. They call the process a powerful problem-solving tool, which can be used for the benefit of workers and employers alike. Rather than being a controversial issue, they say collective bargaining should be used as a public good. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, the World Health Organization is estimating that nearly 50 million people were killed either by the coronavirus or by its impact on overwhelmed health systems in the first two years of the pandemic. That is more than double the current official death toll. The UN Health Agency said a report released Thursday that most of the fatalities were in Southeast Asia, Europe, and the Americas. It says missed deaths in India alone range between 3.3 million to 6.5 million. India, however, disputed the UN Agency's methodology. Accurately counting COVID-19 deaths has been hard to do, as confirmed cases represent only a fraction of the devastation wrought by the virus. That's largely due to limited testing and the differences in how countries count COVID-19 deaths. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Just a few days away from national and local elections in the Philippines on May 9th, the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcus still leads in recent survey, while the current vice president is running a distant second. What's driving the polls and will they produce an accurate result? From Manila, Stanley Buenafe Gehete has the story. A week before the most awaited national elections in the Philippines, there was almost zero movement in the latest Pulse Asia presidential survey held from April 16 to 21 as former senator and son of late dictator Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. still leads with 56% of the respondents choosing him. The 56% that Marcos got for the April edition of the survey is similar to what he got in March. Philippine Vice President Lenny Robredo is still in second place, although she lost one percentage point from 24% last March to 23% this April. 
despite huge rallies from the month of March to April, and even with huge group who supported other candidates shifting to her side, there was still a lack of movement. Meanwhile, boxing icon Manny Pacquiao took the third spot as he got 7% of the respondents' votes. In an interview with Pulse Asia President Ronnie Holmes, anything could change until the voting day. Uh, from my end, at least, I don't think that we can in any way just reduce it to a question of statistics. What we do see is that within this span of time, before we conducted the survey, that compared to the March survey, maybe there were certain conditions that kept people with the voting decision that they had in March, but we don't know what are the events that transpired and how those events that transpired after the survey would impact on the eventual voting decision on May 9th. Marcos' ultimate opponent, Lenny Robredo, who pinned down him on 2016 vice presidential election, is gaining momentum but seems a very little steps behind Marcos. Robredo gained hundreds of thousands of supporters during her campaign rallies all over the Philippines but seems not manifested on national surveys. It's hard to say whether the momentum is there or whether it isn't there. What we did see is that there was a significant change from February to March where there this significant change is something that's boiling and it will be seen in the next few days. Pulse Asia said that the survey results were obtained by interviewing 2,400 respondents age 18 and above who are either registered voters and who are likely to vote in the upcoming polls. The polling firm said they are maintaining 2% error margin at the 95% confidence level. But many are questioning the survey, doubting why the presidential candidate with so much tax evasion cases still lead the surveys. Some experts say surveys fail to reflect all sectors of society, including those living below the poverty line. However, Pulse Asia President Holmes also explained that regardless of the disproportionate representation of certain sectors, the results are still nationally representative of Filipino voters' preferences ahead of voting day. Surveys are meant to gather information for purposes of giving an accurate description of what's happening in a larger population as long as it is accurate and well represented. Filipino statistician Ramon Albert encourages the public to go beyond the numbers and to vote according to conscience and values that are aligned to voters' lives. There should be a good method to gather data and statistical design must be well represented. And people thought unofficial surveys online are reliable when in fact not. Some Filipino are now worried on the upcoming election. Some explain that if Marcos wins, he will be the first Philippine leader who cannot set foot in the U.S. where he and his family face arrest for defying a court order to pay $353 million to human rights victims. For VOA News, I am Stanley Buenafegehete in Manila, Philippines. A global alliance was launched Thursday to support Vanuatu's bid to as the International Court of Justice to consider the human rights impact of climate change. More than 1,500 organizations, including charities, church and student groups from 130 countries, are backing the Pacific Island Nations action. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Vanuatu says global warming is a human rights issue. It wants the International Court of Justice to protect vulnerable communities and the rights of residents. The court's advisory opinions aren't binding, but can set a precedent that could lead to tougher laws to address climate change. Solomon Yeo from the campaign group Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change says Vanuatu's case is a milestone. The Vanuatu government thinks, as does most of the world's eminent climate lawyers, 
that an advisory opinion on climate change from the International Court of Justice has real potential to be a circuit breaker that will lead to greater ambition under the Paris Agreement. So in the future, no one can deny that climate change is a human rights issue that impacts all people who are alive today and those who will follow us. Many Pacific Island nations are already seeing rising sea levels and more intense cyclones. Vanuatu says it will take its case to the United Nations General Assembly in September, which will decide whether to refer it to the International Court of Justice. It would take a simple majority vote for the matter to proceed to the world's highest court. Vanuatu and other Pacific Island nations are among the most vulnerable to climate change, according to the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, Australia's National Science Agency. It said many were already witnessing rainfall pattern shifts, rising sea levels and changes in the frequency and intensity of extreme climate events. Vanuatu's Prime Minister Bob Lofman has called climate change an existential threat to his nation of about 280,000 people who live across an archipelago of roughly 80 islands. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Parallels and contrasts between Russia's intervention in Syria in 2015 and its invasion of Ukraine. Many Syrians who experienced the brutal tactics of the Russian military, which intervened to support Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, are expressing solidarity with Ukrainians, points of convergence and divergence between the two countries and lessons learned or missed. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vanews.com until next time i am chile from washington wishing you a wonderful weekend Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The recently released annual threat assessment by the U.S. intelligence community predicts that Iran will remain a regional menace with broader malign influence activities. The report notes that U.S. personnel, partners, and interests are at risk from the Iranian regime's support for terrorist proxies and the rogue Syrian regime, as well as from Iran's growing willingness to engage in aggressive cyber attacks. In addition, Iran continues to work on its ballistic missile program and has resumed certain nuclear activities beyond the limits set by the Iran nuclear deal. The United States withdrew from the deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, in 2018 under the previous administration. For the past year, the United States has been in indirect negotiations with Iran over a mutual return to full implementation of the JCPOA. As State Department spokesperson Ned Price said, every challenge that we face and would face from Iran, whether that is its support for proxies, its support for terrorist groups, its ballistic missile program, would be all the more difficult to confront if Iran were in the possession of a nuclear weapon. The first thing we want to do is put 
put Iran's nuclear program back in a box to take that challenge off the table. There has been significant progress in the nuclear negotiations, but they have paused in recent weeks over a number of unresolved issues. At a press conference, spokesperson Price said the United States is prepared for a return to full JCPOA implementation. We are also prepared for broader diplomatic efforts to resolve issues outside of the JCPOA, he declared. If the Iranians do not want to use these talks to resolve other bilateral issues, then we are confident we can very quickly reach an understanding on the JCPOA and begin to re-implement the deal itself. It is Iran that needs to make this decision. Spokesperson Price emphasized that the United States is equally prepared for scenarios in which there is a mutual return to compliance with the JCPOA and scenarios in which there is not a mutual return. We would, he said, greatly prefer the former, to have the JCPOA and the verifiable permanent limits that it would again impose on Iran's nuclear program. Whether we are able to get there or not, that is a question for Iran. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 